Good to see you guys. Good to be um, back with you, gathering, worshiping with you uh, in this way. Um, if you have a Bible, please open it up to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is where we are together this evening. And we're going to be looking at these three different parables that Jesus tells. And each parable is about something that is lost and something that is found. Everything's about something that's lost and something that is found. And it climaxes in this parable that you've probably heard maybe many times in your life called the, prodigal, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, right? One that you're probably so familiar with that you might actually even hear that and think to yourself, I already know this, right? And we kind of can zone out almost in a way when we come across familiar things. I was reminded of this as we, were, um, we flew to Nebraska, me and my family, to visit my sister uh, just this oh, a week ago or whatever, and um, and so thank you even for people been praying for my sister. I appreciate that. But we went and saw her and spent time with her, and we got on the flight. And as we got on the flight, like like every time it happens, right? The flight attendants get up there, and what do they do? They walk you through the safety demonstration, right? They, they get out the seatbelt and they go, this is how you buckle the seatbelt and this is where the oxygen masks are going to come down and, and if you ever, you don't land in water or something, right? There's a flotation device under your, you know, your seat and we kind of go through all these things and I thought back to when I was a kid, maybe the first couple times that I flew and how I was just locked in, right? You know, I'm like, this thing's going down for sure and, you know, you know if I land in water, where's that thing, you know? And you're kind of really paying attention to all the things that they're telling you about, right? Because it's not familiar to you. But now when I get on the plane, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, man, I'm just ready to go to bed, right? I can zone out. You're thinking, I already know this, right? I know where the exit doors are, those kinds of things. And that's how it works often for us when we come across things are really familiar. We can think, I know this, and we can check out, right? Maybe in an emergency, I'll hope I would have remembered. But this passage is not given to us just in the case of an emergency someday or, or something like that. It's given to us so that we might understand in a very vivid way, our own condition. And more importantly, that you and I would understand who God is, who God is. And I think what's interesting in this story, in Luke chapter 15, is that Jesus' storytelling was actually done in response to people grumbling. It was done in response to people grumbling. I don't know if you've ever found yourself grumbling Lately, um, I often can grumble. I've found myself grumbling lately. Grumbling is where we complain about things that are just not going the way that we want them to. You know, grumbling is what happens when our lives are made more difficult than we want them to be. Our grumbling happens in our hearts, doesn't it? But it also comes out of our mouths. That's how grumbling is expressed. Unless you're my four-year-old daughter, Isla, who literally growls at me when things aren't going the way that she wants them to. So her grumbling is expressed in a growl. Okay? It's really strange, and she actually calls it riling, not growling, which makes it cute and more confusing to me. So, um, but that's what we see here, right? We see grumbling. It's what happens when things don't go the way that we want them to. And that's what we see here with these people. Look in verses 1 through 2. It says in verse, chapter 15, verse 1 to 2, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They're grumbling, maybe growling, I don't know. They're grumbling at least. And what's their problem? This man receives sinners and eats with them. I mean, how dare Jesus? I mean, didn't his mama teach him better, 
right? Bad company corrupts good morals, right? We've, we've all heard that idea. That's maybe a similar thing that's going on here, but, but I think more is happening. Why are they grumbling? Well, if Jesus is embracing people like this, which we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, if he's embracing and inviting cheaters, sellouts, prostitutes, adulteresses, lepers, demoniacs, and mixed-race Jews called Samaritans, which we've seen has been a big issue lately in the Gospel of Luke, if he's inviting all these people into the circle of God's favor, then these people who think that they're at the center of that can sense that their monopoly on God's favor is in serious jeopardy. I mean, if you suddenly discovered that Jesus was, in more words or less, like redrawing the inner circle and making it much wider than your liking, and you begin to sense that at one point you were at the center of that, no one was challenging that, you were thought of as the right religious people, but all of a sudden this circle's getting larger. People who you don't think should be there are in there you might grumble too. And how does he respond to this grumbling? Well, he answers them with a triptych, a triptych. A triptych is a set of three associated literary works that is intended to be appreciated together. And most of us just focus on the third one, but they all go together and each makes the same point and each one makes its own point. And in these stories, we are seeing here the purpose of the kingdom of God. But even more specifically, we're seeing Jesus' purpose, who is the king of this kingdom. And the purpose here is to bring the lost to God. It's to bring the lost to God. The purpose is to bring the lost home. And so here's what we see here in our our passage tonight. We see in the first uh, parable, we see the need for this search for things that are lost. In the second parable, we see the nature of this search. And then the last one, the most famous one, we see those that are searched for, those that are searched for. So let's look at the first parable, the need for this search. We see it in the parable of the lost sheep. Beginning in verse 3, read with me here. It says, so he told them this parable, the people grumbling. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Uh, Jesus kind of breaks the cardinal rule of exegesis here, okay? He starts with the application in verses 3 through 4, and he's basically making this connection for these people who are grumbling. He's saying, if you lose a sheep, you go after it, don't you? His point is, that's what I'm doing. I'm going after these people that are lost, right? When, when they lose a sheep, they don't say, oh, well, it's just my sheep, Right? And he's like, I don't do that either. The sheep belongs with the rest of the flock. That's why they're called lost. And Jesus is saying, you do the same thing. We all do the same thing. I I own a a 2006 Honda Odyssey van, okay? I'm not trying to brag, but I do. It's pretty cool. And uh, we bought this thing back maybe 2014. 
And, uh, but you could say I'm a pretty unwise person when it comes to this van because our van only came with one key and one key fob, and I've never done anything about it. So we still have the same key, right? So far, we've had no issues, which is awesome. I'm praising God for that, okay? Miraculously, no issues yet. Um, I, I don't know why. I just won't break the bank and go buy another one too. But, but there's many days where I've imagined, if I'm being really honest with you, I've imagined what would it be like if I lost that key? What would it be like if I lost that key? I don't have another key, right? What I wouldn't do is just go, oh, well, no big deal. I just won't drive my family anywhere, right? No, I'd be like, uh, please help me find the key, right? Everybody, stop what you're doing. We're looking for this key, right? That is, that's natural. That's normal to do something like that, especially because the value of something is revealed to us when we lose it. Like if you lose something, the value of that thing is revealed to you when you lose it. If you lose it and you're like, not a big deal, moving on, I'll get another one. It's not that valuable. But if something is like, I, we got a, all hands on deck here, we're going to find this thing. It's showing you the value. And so the reaction of the shepherd to finding the lost sheep, it actually would have struck the first century audience as a bit odd. I mean, look in verse 5, he found it, lays it on its shoulders, his shoulders rejoicing. But if you found some wandering sheep as a shepherd, Maybe when you found it, you might look at that sheep and say, you're going to walk back. You know, for goodness sakes, you know, uh, that'll teach you maybe to wander off. You know, not that the sheep can hear you and understand you, but, but you might be tempted to say something like that. But no, the, the shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulders and rejoices. He, he's not put out. He doesn't take his anger out on this stray. The response of rejoicing really seems out of proportion with the occasion, though. Because Jesus asked everyone, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? That's his question. The natural response is, well, all of us would do that, unless it's not my sheep. And then he goes, well, what man of you, when you find it, would lay it on your shoulders rejoicing and throw a party? Everyone would probably think, uh, none of us would do that right? That's kind of a weird thing to do, honestly. So don't miss the illustration here. We, we can think of sheep as pets or um, something that is kind of cute in our modern eyes or something. Like, that's sad. The sheep wandered off. We should go help it or something. But Jesus is merely talking about livestock. Livestock. But this guy throws a party for a lost livestock member. Just wait. It actually gets weirder. In the second one, because what Jesus is making clear here in this first triptych is the need for this search. This is a normal thing to do. You search for things that you value. The search for something that is lost is natural. You even do it. But look at the second thing, the nature of this search in verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the first parable makes it clear the purpose of this kingdom. It's to search out the lost, to bring them back. So that's what it's, it's revealing to us. But here, that what's being built upon that is the nature of this search. Like we, we have no idea what the shepherd went through 
to bring the lost sheep home, right? We only know that he searches until he finds it. I imagine maybe it wasn't easy. I imagine maybe there's a lot of yelling or whistling or uh, maybe walking and hiking. You know, maybe there was bad weather when he's looking for the sheep. We don't know. We have no idea. We just know that he searches until he finds the sheep. But here, Jesus reveals to us what the nature of the search looks like. And we see a lady who loses a coin, and she has ten coins, so now she has nine. And a coin was the equivalent of a day's wage. So these coins are actually meant to represent to us a poor woman's savings. I mean, this would be a huge, uh, serious loss uh, to her. Maybe an insignificant one for a lot of people listening, or maybe even for somebody like you, but this was a serious loss for someone like her. So what does she do? Does she cut her losses? Does she say, it's just a coin, no big deal? Right? No, the whole house is lit up, right? Every inch is swept. The woman seeks diligently until she finds the coin. She's thorough in what she's doing. And just like the shepherd, she doesn't stop until she finds the object of her search. And as we all know, when you go looking for something, it's always in the last place you look, I imagine, right? It's probably even in your pocket, right? That's what we learn. But just like the shepherd, the woman rejoices when she finds the coin. She invites the neighborhood over, right? And Jesus says, this is what it's like when tax collectors and sinners repent and enter the kingdom of God. All heaven goes nuts, right? Cheers. So here's the point. If the religious people are grumbling at this, that's supposed to reveal something about them. Right? If heaven is rejoicing, then why aren't you? So this is the first two parables. Jesus is trying to show us the normal need for this search and the nature of the search. You're going to do whatever it takes. You're going to light up the house. You're going to sweep it clean. But then thirdly, we see those that are searched for in this famous parable of the lost sons in verses 11 through 32. You've probably heard this parable referred to as the prodigal son. I bet your Bible even says as a heading, the parable of the prodigal son. It's extremely famous. It's resonated with countless people over the centuries, both inside and outside of the Christian faith. Um, Maybe even famously, um, I, I don't, I'm not really into paintings. I wish I liked paintings more, but I've always said this painting is my favorite among Rembrandt's. It's his final most famous work called The Return of the Prodigal Son. You've probably seen this famous painting. It's impacted so many people's lives. What we mean here when we talk about prodigal, the word prodigal literally just means spending money or resources freely. It's spending them wastefully or extravagantly. And that's kind of the irony of this story because we do see the younger son who recklessly spends the wealth that his father gives to him. But in all actuality, according to the definition, there's another prodigal in the story, and that is the father. It's the person representing God here in the story, but for entirely different reasons. His generosity appears wasteful to the older brother, but it's anything other than that. So here's what I want us to see. The other two parables have been leading up to this one. This one is making Jesus' point clear. It's bringing it all together, and we see actually two lost sons, and we see one gracious father here. So let's look at the running son first. In verses 11 through 24, we're going to read this together. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, 
And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate, just like the woman and just like the shepherd. If you want to sum up this story into different scenes, it's actually pretty helpful to see it this way. Uh, You see first in verse 11 through 13, this younger son is sick of home. But then he becomes sick. And then he gets homesick. And then he comes home. That's how the story is, is rolled out for us. But so first look, though, how the son is sick of home. And his speech in verse 12 is really shocking. Because he, he goes to the father and he asks for this inheritance, uh, which was basically to look at your father and say, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Because right? you never got the inheritance until after your father died. And this is even more significant because the older brother uh, was the one who would always receive two-thirds of the inheritance in Jewish culture. And so this younger brother was only meant to receive one-third of this inheritance from this father. And even more so, this inheritance was always bound up in the land. So basically, to receive this inheritance, this father would have to sell off a portion of his own property in order to get that money and then give it to his son, So look at this younger son, right? He wants the father's things. He doesn't want the father. I want your stuff. I don't want you. Right? The son's speech is shocking, but honestly, I think the father's response is even more shocking because maybe normally for a Middle Eastern father, uh, a father like this, when you would receive a word like this, you would drive that son out of the house, maybe verbally or physically abuse them. But instead, this father is enduring the worst thing that you or I or any other human being could ever endure. And that is rejected love. It's the love for somebody and that person rejecting you to the point where they're saying, I wish you were dead. How would you respond? I think most of us uh, would probably get angry. We would retaliate. In some way, we would reject them. We would rise up. We would flex our muscles figuratively, maybe literally, depending on how big your muscles are or something, right? We, we would do whatever we can to diminish our love for that person. 
And we would even go to great lengths to try to let that person know of how our love has diminished for them. This is natural for us to do things in this way, but that's not what this father does. All we have here, though, in his running is verses 13 to 14 that describes the prodigal life. He went out, he squandered his property in this reckless living. He uses his father. He uses the resources he had. I imagine he used other things and other people along his path to make his life as fun, as enjoyable, and as comfortable as possible. He was an independent, free man doing whatever he wished. That sounds like the dream for most people. But then he spends everything, and what he doesn't expect is a famine to hit, right? You see that in verse 14, right? And what does he do? He begins to be in need. That's how it's described. Verse 15, what does he do? He hires himself out. Ask yourself, where is he? Verse 13 tells you he's in a far country. This is not Jewish Hebrew territory here. So this would have made a, you know, Jewish ears sort of wince. He went out and he hired himself out to, to be a servant of a Gentile, right? And this would have been horrible humiliation for a Jewish person. Literally, he's glued himself to a Gentile as a servant. Just think of how this person's life has gone. He was living comfortably in, in a really nice place with his father. He got this inheritance and look where it's gotten him. I just, it's, it's hard for us to imagine the great lengths of this. So, I mean, even this week I was trying to think like, you know, just imagine who, think about who your favorite actor is or actors or something. So for me, I'm thinking maybe like John Krasinski, Emily Blunt, people like that, right? Like you think about these people who are kind of held up in our society as great people in, in more ways or one, right? And, and so just imagine people like these people are your favorite actor or something. This would be like finding out years later from now that they were no longer acting, right? They were divorced, and they were living in a van down by the river or something, you know, applying for minimum wage jobs or whatever it is, right? You just go like, man, how did, how did that happen, right? How did you get from here to here, right? Here's where we find him, not in a van by the river, but in the fields with the pigs longing to eat their food, Jesus' mentioning of the son's time with the pigs is yet another sign of his utter separation because to a Jewish person, swine were unclean by the law. And here he finds himself dependent upon them, practically one of them. He's hit rock bottom. He is now utterly alien to everyone. So what Jesus is doing here is he's setting up this lost son as exemplary of all the untouchables all the undesirable people to whom the kingdom is being brought to, all the people that these religious leaders are grumbling about. This is like a, the epitome image of this. So here we have this son, and he's deceived himself. He sought freedom, and he's found slavery. Then he gets homesick in verse 17, 17 through 19, and he thinks, well, My father won't receive me back as a son, but maybe I can go home as a servant. Serving him would be better than doing what I'm doing here, so I should go home. Maybe I could pay back my father. So he thinks to himself, 
to go and say to his father when he sees him, he's going to go and say to him, I've sinned against heaven, which is him saying, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against you, which is really significant because he's not saying, I just made a bad judgment call here. Ah, I shouldn't have done that. That was a mistake. No, he's, he's, he's realizing, I have offended God, and I've offended my father. I have sinned in this way. So this is what he's decided to do. And interestingly, though, the father, we notice him here, he hasn't moved on with his life. He's said to be scanning the horizon, which we're meant to imply there that, that he's doing this on a daily basis, that he's always looking for his lost son. And what's his reaction when he sees him? We don't find him go into the house and lock the doors and send out another one of his servants saying, go tell my son you're not welcome here. He doesn't do that. What do you see him doing in verse 20? The father runs. Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. Children, yeah. We, who, who can stop them, right? Okay. Youth, of course. Women, yes, women ran. Okay. Dads, no way. Right? That that wasn't honorable. But he sees his lost son. And what does Luke tell you? He felt compassion. So he runs. And what does he do when he gets there? He hugs him. He kisses him. Do you notice this? He does all of this before the son even gets a word out of his mouth. He doesn't even know what he's going to say. He sees him. He's been waiting for this. Probably praying for this. Run, hug, kiss. And the son tries to roll out his great plan, right? He's very meek and humble. He's sorry. He sees clearly now. And the son's response to his father's extravagant and gracious actions, what was it? Well, it was to think that he wasn't a son anymore. But hopefully he could be a slave. And this is really important. This is how a lot of us think about our relationship with God. We might finally come home, so to speak. We, we, we see our sin and we feel horrible about it. We see our unworthiness and we come back to him and we're like, I'm not a son, I'm not a daughter anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pay you back, God. I'll make this right. I should not have done that. Right, we start making promises about what we can do to pay God back, so to speak. I'll do this for this length of time and then maybe God's frown will turn into a smile. Maybe. But how does his father respond? What will he do? He doesn't even wait for the son to take a bath. I mean, he's been living with pigs. I imagine that does not smell very good, but he doesn't even wait for that. What does he say? Give him a robe. Give him a robe. That was a symbol of honor, and it's the best robe, right? Put a ring on his finger. That was a sign of sonship. Put, put shoes on his feet, which was significant because he's asking to become a slave. And slaves were the only people who walked around barefoot. But he's like, no, 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 give him some shoes. Do you notice it's the only thing in this entire story that the son asked for and the father refuses him is to become a slave and not a son. It's the only thing the father says, I'm not doing it. That's it. His son was lost and he is found. And they begin to celebrate in verse 24. But there is someone who isn't celebrating. Instead, he's grumbling. 
Verses 25, what does it say? Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead, and he's alive. He was lost. He's found. This older brother hears what's happened, and he won't go out. So what does the father do? He goes out to him. He pursues the older son. And the older son, what's he mad about? He's mad about the cost, right? This, this, this is a big deal here about this calf. He's like, I haven't even gotten a goat, Right? Right? You gave him a calf? A calf, right? Meat was expensive. The older brother was saying, basically, how dare you use our wealth like this? In other words, I have some right over your things. And notice how he publicly humiliates his father, because in verse 29, he doesn't say, hey, father. What does he say? He goes, look. Look. How does the father respond? You say, you don't talk to me like that. He goes, my child. You see that? I want you in the feast. To the older son, his father was what? A taskmaster. I've been slaving. I've been working. I've never disobeyed. Right? I've never done that. He was convinced of his own goodness. Do you see this? And this false assurance actually makes growth and improvement in his life impossible. Because if I'm constantly comparing myself to others, in this case, the younger brother, and I'm like, no, I'm a good person. I've done this. I do this. I've earned this. Well, well, then I, I will never be humble enough to actually see my need for growth, right? So what's going on here? We see that the son who thought he'd never been lost was actually far more lost than he could even see. His reaction to his brother's homecoming revealed his lostness. I mean, it is is possible for us as elder brothers to leave our father without leaving the farm. That's what's happening here. Elder brothers, people who think, because of what I've done, because I'm not like them, that, that I'm good enough, Right? When I, if I live that way, I am an elder brother here in this story who thinks that God loves me, that I, he owes me pretty much, that I've earned something from him because of the way that I've lived. But we can be so distant from the Father without leaving even the home, the farm. St. Augustine put it like this in his famous book, Confessions, for it is not by our feet nor by change of place that we either turn from God or to God 
In darkened affections lies the distance from his face. See, his goodness was on the outside and it was just a facade. He he was lost too. He didn't love the Father for the sake of the Father. He loved the Father for what the Father would give him. And that's exactly what we're seeing here, you guys, that running people, people who run from God, think that they're going to find freedom in life apart from God and they find slavery. So running people use things hoping to find life. But religious people use God hoping to find life. That's exactly what we're seeing here. If you remember who Jesus is talking to and who's grumbling, we see here that this parable's great emphasis is actually on the older brother way more than it is on the younger brother. If it was on the younger brother, the story would have ended back in verse 24. But we have this great ending here in verse uh, 25 to the end that puts the emphasis here on the older brother. So Jesus is essentially raising the question to us, who is really lost? Who is it that is really far from the kingdom? Here we see the grumbling of the older brother who's never left. This is more about the hard heart that he has than the running heart even of the younger son. You're asked what's really going on here? This is, this is so brilliant by Jesus. It's brilliant and it's beautiful, you guys, because Jesus is showing us He's beginning to show us a fulfillment to something that we've seen throughout the pages of Scripture. And if you've read your Bibles, you've probably wondered out loud at some point or just in the confusion of your quiet heart why there is this ongoing theme of this younger brother, older brother dynamic throughout the Bible. And this keeps coming up over and over again. I mean, if you're familiar with the stories in Genesis, you know of of Cain and Abel the younger and older brother. You know of Jacob and Esau. Esau's the older brother, right? Then you have Joseph and his brothers or David and his brothers. And the older brother is always kind of like this really dense, like what's wrong with this person kind of thing, right? You know, like what's going on with these older brothers? But we consistently see the younger brothers outsmarting and outshining the older brothers over and over again. And it's all culminating here in this parable that Jesus is telling us. Right? This doesn't mean the younger brothers are always better. So if you're a younger brother, don't just, oh yeah, this means Jesus loves me more. So that's not what this is, is saying here, not at all. Younger brothers are not better. This is just another way that God continues to show his wisdom through the weak, through the less than. It's by making the older serve the younger. God continually is doing this throughout the pages of Scripture. He chooses the B team. Right, The bench, the the alternatives, the lowly, the foolish, the weak, and the unassuming to humble all the all-stars, so to speak. We see this over and over again. Older brother after older brother failing again and again. The person who has the position of highest honor in the family failing again and again. And then we get to the lost son story and the older brother is is put in his place not just to show how shameful self-righteousness is or how religious pride is, but is to show us the desperate need that all of us have for someone finally once in history to be a good older brother. There's, There's a massive difference in these three stories. They're meant to go together, right? What's the difference in these stories? There's a massive difference in this third one and the other two. In the first two parables, what happens? Somebody goes looking for the one that's lost. 
The sheep's lost, the shepherd goes. The coin's lost, the woman lights up the house. But in this parable, nobody goes. Certainly not the older brother. So who will go? That's the question. Who will seek out the lost? Who's going to bring him home? Well, the good older brother will. The only good older brother. It's the one actually being grumbled against here for doing that very thing. It's Jesus. He's the one who is fully perfect. Inherently good. But he will leave home. He left the glory of heaven and humbled himself. And we are told that he who was rich became poor so that those who found themselves in the pig pen might receive the eternal wealth of being in the family of God. In just a few chapters, Jesus is going to declare in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why I've come. He's the true, good, older brother. He is going to light up the house, put the chairs on the table, sweep every floorboard, nook and cranny until the task is finished. We are told in the Gospel of John that he loses none that the Father gives him. He will go searching in every casino, every whorehouse, every adult video store, every apartment, every neighborhood, every library, every bedroom, every pigsty until he finds every sinner God is calling home. He scandalizes the older brothers. I mean, who is like this? They grumble. They cling to their pearls. And Jesus is just dishing them out. Finally, we have an older brother who serves the younger brother. Willingly, joyfully, redemptively. Do you see this, guys? This parable is really about God's extravagant, prodigal spending and searching to bring you home. You. No matter what kind of lostness you find yourself in, if you're the person who thinks, I've never left, I earn this, God owes me, you're lost. If I look around and I think, well, I'm not those people, I'm lost. If I'm out searching for freedom, thinking I'm going to find it apart from God, I'm lost. And praise God that Jesus' mission is to bring the lost home then. You can be lost in a far country tonight, or you can be lost in the same house. But praise God, he's a pursuing God. He initiates. He doesn't wait. He goes out to both sons. The father goes out and he kisses the son running home before he repents. The kiss initiates the repentance. This is maybe what Paul has in his mind when he, when he writes, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, right? The father goes out to the elder son and he doesn't fight his religiosity with religiosity or legalism. With legalism, he doesn't go, well, you've done this, this, and this. You're not as good as you think you are. No, he confronts legalism with grace. He says, I want you in the room. It's amazing. Let me ask you, if this is showing you who God is, is this who you understand God to be? Do you understand God to be this way? 
Or do you imagine him standing there just shaking his head, crossing his arms? You begin to walk home to him, so to speak, but he goes in and closes the door. Is he reluctant to come out? Does he say you need to shower first for a while first, maybe clean yourself up a little bit and then we can talk? Does he shame you and go, you did all these things and throw it in your face? Is that what he does? Is he, is he a God who just tries to make you feel bad? When I, when I first meet somebody, I put my, uh, when I add them to my contacts, I often write in the notes like something about them so I can remember who they are, right? Maybe this is just, I have bad memory or something. But I often write really um, not important things about this person. And uh, I was thinking about this even this week. I do it with people all the time, but there was one person in particular that came to my mind when I was thinking about this is a guy named Brent Lawrence, who I knew in Corvallis. And when I met him, he was a freshman at Oregon State. And he lived at a Christian house called Varsity House. Some of you guys actually lived there back in the day. And so I, I wrote in there, Brent Lawrence, VH kid, right? Because everybody calls it VH. Okay, because to me, it was just a varsity house kid. And it was interesting because our relationship really changed over time. Because he was that. He did live in varsity house. He was an Oregon State student. But over time, we began to play music together. Well, we entered a discipling sort of relationship, you might say. We spent tons of time together, roasting coffee, drinking it, traveling, doing mission trips together. We would play in the worship team. Then he started leading worship for our church. Me and my wife did his premarital counseling with him and his now wife, Hannah. You know, I officiated their wedding. And it was even after that wedding that one time we were talking about something, some contact information was changing, and we were sitting there looking at my phone. He looks down, and he sees Brent Lawrence, VH kid, and he's like, that's how you know me? Is the VH kid still? And I was just a little bit embarrassed, but I was like, yeah, isn't that funny? At one point, that's all I knew you as. But man, our relationship has grown. It's changed. There's so much more than that. As maybe that's how you've related to God. At one point, you met God and you've just thought of him as judge. He's king. Hear me clearly. Don't lose that. He is judge. He is king. But when you understand and think about who you understand God to be, foundationally, is God a loving father to you who scans the horizon searching and Jesus, the true older brother, being sent out saying, I will go and find them, that son or that daughter in the far country, right? He's searching for you to bring you home, knowing that in doing that, he gives his life up even unto death. So that Jesus says to even somebody like you, that son, that daughter was dead and they are alive. Is this who you see God to be? And this story resonates with all of us, doesn't it? It's this sense of being lost and being estranged from God. I think all of us can resonate with that in different ways, either as the older or the younger brother. It's a story that's impacted people forever. I've often wondered how much it impacted Ernest Hemingway's famous short story called The Capital of the World. It's that story that Hemingway writes about where there was a father and a teenage son, and the teenage son and the father have a conflict, and the boy in shame runs away from home. But the father goes searching for the son all over Spain. His name's Paco, which is like a really famous Spanish name, kind of like Jonathan or something. I don't know. There's a lot of Jonathans, I feel like. But, right, you know, like there'd be people like that. 
He's going and looking for his son Paco all over Spain. He finally goes to Madrid. He can't find him anywhere. It's a humongous city. And the story goes, as Hemingway writes it, that he finally, in a desperate last attempt to find his son, places the dad places an ad in the newspaper. And all the ad said is this, Paco, meet at Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. That's all he writes. The father prayed that maybe the boy would see the ad and maybe, just maybe, he would come to Hotel Montana on Tuesday. Tuesday rolls around, and in Hemingway's story, he arrives. The father does at Hotel Montana, and he couldn't believe his eyes. The police are there. They're trying to manage the situation because 800 boys named Paco showed up. They read the ad in the paper, and they hoped it was for them. 800 Pacos came to receive forgiveness, came to be reconciled to their father. I love that story because it just, it resonates with all of us. We all get that in one way or another. It resonates with us all, and I think that's why Hemingway wrote it. He probably ripped it off of Luke 15. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard for religious people, and it's hard for prodigals. It's hard to believe that God loves us. but it's even harder to believe that God loves us because he loves us. And for religious people, the older brothers, we think God loves me because I do this. I do this and I don't do this. And for prodigals, we think God couldn't love me because I've done this. And Jesus is saying, no. If you doubt whether God loves you, look at what I've come to do. To seek and save the lost and it drove me to my death. I thought I'd end with this. Ephesians 2 reads this way. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. The prodigals, right? And peace to you who were near. Those older brothers. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Because there are many ways to be lost. And if you find yourself lost tonight, know that Jesus is on the search. So come home. He's out to bring you home. Lord Jesus, we come to you tonight in great awe of your humility and your extravagant grace. God, we talk about you being so holy. You are holy, holy, holy. That great vision of Isaiah or that we read. But Lord, I'm, I'm more in awe even more so of your holiness and how you love us. We are so not like you. Your grace is um, extravagant. It's immeasurable. Your pursuit of us, every one of us in this room, Lord, I, I, I pray tonight that we would see the great lengths that you've gone through to seek and to save the lost. God, I pray for those who are lost tonight, maybe um, through thinking they're good in their own eyes or thinking you could never love them. I pray you'd bring them home. And I pray for those that you've brought home that we would enjoy you in your care uh, for us as our Father. 
Thank you for Luke 15, God. Thank you for these stories. Help us to be people who aren't like the grumblers here, uh, but people who rejoice with heaven for every person that comes home. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.